us from 1 Samuel chapter 4 on the story of the Ark of the Covenant being captured by the Philistines. And in that story, God was letting Israel know that he cannot be controlled or used. And in this chapter, in chapter 5, he's going to give the Philistines and us a similar lesson. So as we continue in our uh, story, this fantastic story of the Ark of God and its capture and release, um, would you please stand? One more time as the Lord call, or as the Lord, uh, out of respect for the reading of God's word, this is First Samuel chapter five. Now, when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, and then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold. Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left, and this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon Do not tread on this threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. For the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. And so they sent, they gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And so they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. And so they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. So they sent the ark, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for what it tells us about us, what our pre-existing condition is, Lord, what it tells us about you, your power, and what you have done for us, Lord. So we pray that you would help us to see our true condition tonight, Lord. We pray that you would help us to see deeply into our own hearts, Lord, to see how we are so very like the Israelites and even the Philistines, Lord, but to see even more the beauty of Jesus and what he has done for us, freeing us from the slavery that we willingly give ourselves over to. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. 
So you're gonna, most of you know I just got back from China. I taught a class in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. And one of the part, part of a Pentateuch class is presenting uh, alongside the creation story in Genesis all these other creation stories from the ancient Near East. They're very similar. Uh, in fact, some of them are extremely similar to the stories that are in Genesis, the, the creation story, the story of the flood. And one of my favorite stories that I got to present to them is the Epic of Gilgamesh, and uh, most particularly the part of the Epic of Gilgamesh where uh, the story of a guy named Utnapishtim. Now, I love this story primarily just because the guy's name is Utnapishtim. I think if we have another son, <laughs> Ut, we could call him Ut, maybe Napish. Utnapishtim. Wouldn't that be the best name for a boy? Well, anyways, <laughs> I love the story of Utnapishtim, not only because I get to say his name, but because of what it tells us about what the gods of the earth are really like. In the story, in the epic, it's filled with these vivid images of the gods of the earth and what they're really like when they send the flood on the earth in the, in the, in the, in the Sumerian epic. The gods send the flood upon the earth and then they cower like dogs on the mountaintops and in the high heavens of the flood that they've created. Uh, and then eventually, uh, when Utnapishtim offers a sacrifice to the god, as he falls to his knees and weeps at the first touch of blessed sunlight hitting his face, the gods, who have been starved because of their human food providers all being killed, are depicted as descending upon the sacrifice like a swarm of flies in deep dependence upon their human subjects. And I love, this, I love this story, and the reason we teach it in that Pentateuch class is to show that Genesis is meant, is written to teach us this deep contrast between what the gods of the earth are like and what the God of heaven and earth is like what uh, the gods that we naturally want to serve are really all about versus who the God that we ought to serve is really like. And the, the difference is that the gods of the earth are dependent upon us in all these stories to feed them or to prop them up, but, and here's their trump card, they offer to give us what we want. And that's how, that's a, That's an easy sell with us. Uh, But, and here's the contrast that this story is trying to teach. The God of heaven and earth, the God who created the earth, is independent. He is independent of us. He is power. He will not be controlled. It's really, it's not so much that he will not allow himself to be controlled, is that he cannot be controlled because of who he is. His being in itself is power. And it's so contrary, it so contradicts our notions of what power is all about that we see it, we see him as weakness throughout the text. Uh, because of who he is, his purity, his truth, his holiness, his being is true power and cannot be controlled by fallen human efforts to bend reality to our own wills. It cannot be. Just cannot. 
And this is a mercy to us. Because we, what we want is not what we need. Most often. And to God of heaven and earth, to those whom he has chosen to be his, he crushes the heads of our idols. And instead of letting us have what we want, he shares with us what we truly need, which is his divine life. Here and in the hereafter. And that's the same story that God is teaching us here in this epic battle between Yahweh and Dagon, is that our idols may have power to give us what we want, but God is power to give us what we need. And our idols may have power to give us what we want, but God is power to give us what we need. So let's look at that one piece at a time first. Our idols may have power to give us what we want. The story, it starts in the Ark of the Covenant. Yahweh, the God of Israel, has been taken captive as a trophy of war. And the Philistines are more surprised about this than anybody. Here in the opening of the battle, when the Ark comes into the camp, the Philistines remember all, they know more about they know more about what happened in Egypt than the Israelites remember. Uh, and they are terrified. They're convinced that they are going to be defeated. And yet at the end of the battle, there they are standing. Not only have they won, but they are now in possession of the Ark of Israel. And so they take the Ark. And as, they were, as ancient uh, cultures were wont to do, they would take the Ark and make it as a subservient or vassal god to their god and the temple of their god. And their god was Dagon. Dagon was a fertility god, meaning he was the god who made sure you had lots of babies and your crops came in uh, because that was power in the ancient Near East. If you had lots of kids, lots of sons and daughters, you had armies and in industry to support war. And if you had lots of agriculture, you had material wealth and possessions. And so Dagon represented all of that. And so Yahweh actually seemed to be given a little bit of respect. He's placed beside Dagon in the temple, much the same way that we sometimes uh, try to place God beside the idols already reigning in our hearts. Uh, (laughs) But surprise, surprise, what happens? People come in the next morning and, and... and they find Dagon is, the picture is this. He's prostrate in front of the Ark of the Covenant early in the morning, about the time of the sacrifice of, 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 uh, in Israel, in Jerusalem, and he's worshiping the God of Israel. And that's funny. <laughs> it's meant to be funny. Whoever wrote this meant to show, that was a funny thing that he was trying to show. Here they thought they were, had the Ark captive, and then... Yahweh in the morning is worshiping, worshiping Dagon. And, and you think that that would give them a clue. You think that they might say, at, just at that point, they might say, uh, okay, <laughs> okay, we were wrong. Dagon's worshiping, worshiping Yahweh. Maybe we ought to worship Yahweh too, but they don't do that. What do they do? Best line in the whole chapter, funniest line is this. And so they took Dagon and put him back in his place. (laughs) Our idols need us to prop them up. And maybe some of you are, are, are hearing that and you're thinking, well, that's a stupid thing. I would never do that. Maybe some of you 
who are older, maybe, are thinking and laughing to yourselves because you are remembering all of the times that you've done exactly just that. <laughs> but look, before we, uh, before we really get into what, how our idols need to prop them up, we need to get a good handle on what idolatry actually is because I don't think we know. I think the church has largely lost its understanding even if we can, even if we intellectually are able to articulate the doctrine correctly, I sense in counseling and talking to people just a big disconnect between what idolatry really is and what sin really is, the power of it. I think, I tend to think, I think of idolatry, I think of, um, you know, the outward worship of things uh, that in the, back in the day when, when supernatural, when the, when the world was... Uh, the construct of the world was supernatural. People made gods, but now that it's material, we worship Rolexes and cars and jobs and things like that. Uh, and that the, the transition point from gods to to outward things is a, re- a relatively recent transition. But but listen to what this is what Paul says. Paul says Paul says idolatry, even in his day, was not primarily about the things that we worship, but the state of our heart that causes us to worship and lust after those things. It's really about what our hearts naturally want, what naturally comes up out of us. He, look, this is what he says. Uh, Ephesians 5, I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit. He says, You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or covetous person, those are moral categories, will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God for such a person is really an idolater who worships the things of this world. In other words, what he's saying is, even for Paul, it wasn't about worshiping a statue. He was saying that idol was a tool being used of a much deeper reality. That our idols are really the things that promise to get us what we want, which ultimately in our day is defined as self-fulfillment. I think it's always been that. There's an author that has written a book that talks about different ages of the world that were God's nation self and in different paradigms and different ages people built their idols around those things. In the age of gods they built gods. In the age of nation idols were all about national sovereignty and power and in the age of self it's now about self-fulfillment. I think that that's just the, our age is just that the masks are off. It's always been about self-fulfillment what it is that our hearts tell us will ultimately fulfill us even when it contradicts God's revealed wisdom and word. And so there's a, another author, a guy named, old, an old pastor, Stephen Clarkson, he's written this sermon that Tim Keller talks about in his book, Counterfeit Gods, and he makes a distinction between external idolatry and an internal idolatry he calls soul idolatry. The external idolatry may be the things that we, you know, that we, that we go after, that, uh, the things that we metaphorically bow before, but the internal or soul idolatry are all these, all these things. He lists 13 of them. I'm going to blow through them because I, I wrote a, I wrote a, dissertation length paper this week on this stuff and realized I couldn't fit it all into the sermon today. But this is what, listen, this is what he said. This is how our hearts are operating behind the scenes underneath everything. This is how 
This is how idolatry actually works. What we esteem, that which we most highly value, we make our God. Our mindfulness, that's what we, what we are most mindful of, we make our God. Our intentions, that which we most aim at, we make our God. Our resolution, what we are most resolved after is what we worship as God. Our love, the thing that we most love is what we worship as God. Our trust, that which we most trust in is what we make our God. Our fear, that which we most fear is what we can worship as God. Our hope, what we place our highest hope on is what we worship. Our desire, what we most desire. Our delight, what we most delight and rejoice in. Our zeal, that which we are most zealous for. Our gratitude, what we are most grateful for. Uh, and ultimately, all our, our care and our industry. When it is more for other things than for God, this is idolatrous, he says. No man can serve two masters. We cannot serve God and mammon, God and our lusts also, because this service of ourselves and of the world takes up that care, that industry, those endeavors which the Lord must have of necessity if we are to serve Him as God. When I was meditating over this, I was thinking to myself, there's at least two, if not more, scary things that that says about us. First is that our idolatry uh, isn't, for Christians especially, for Christians this is scary, our idolatry isn't just about what we do worship, what we are worshiping, as it is about who we're not worshiping, what we're taking away from God, what is rightfully His. And the second thing which I think is scarier is it that idolatry is a pre-existing condition. It's not something that we work up. It's something that is natural to us. That little piece, that little bit of wisdom right there, understanding that idolatry is a pre-existing condition that when our hearts desire something against the revealed will of God, that's not something, uh, that is something that is not caused by something we do. Uh, it is just there. It's part of who we are. And it's still in opposition to God's will. It is still in opposition to God. It's still sin. And so, you know, after I thought that through, I was like, those, those guys in the Dagon, the ta- Dagon's temple, they were, they were putting that statue back up. They were driven to do it. They were driven to do it almost a, it was, it, 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 in slavery to that idol. The idol promises to give us what we want, which we're convinced will make us fulfilled. But in order to make it work, we have to prop it up. You know, I wrote, when I first titled this, this point, I said, our idols are powerless to give us what we want. And then I, you know, I was reading through it, and I was like, no, that's not true. And we do a disservice to people when we say that, when we you know, tell people, especially we're talking in youth groups and whatnot about sin and how destructive and, and, and it will just destroy your life. 
That's not all the time true. Oftentimes, the idols does have the power to give us what we want. And it's not an overnight destruction. It's a long, drawn-out drift away from God, away from goodness, away from honoring Him as we should. It's the long-term damage that happens from it. And so we have to prop it up over the, over the long term. The things that we think are going to fulfill us may give us an initial sense of joy, may even give us an initial sense of fulfillment. That's a characteristic of idols. But over time, it starts to wear out. Over time, we'll find ourselves having to level up to the next level to get the same amount of satisfaction out of it. Over time, we'll have to find ourselves propping it up and trying again even though it failed us in the past and over time we find ourselves driving less satisfaction out of more effort and eventually the idol shows itself for what it is it's not God it doesn't have the power to give us what we're searching for it can counterfeit it remarkably so but ultimately, it is not able to be God and it cannot sustain joy and ultimately puts us in slavery. But God in His mercy, will, He will allow us to learn these lessons of propping up our idols. He'll let us run down the street with it. Man, amen. <laughs> but eventually, He shows His power on our behalf. The second point, God is power. Look at... It says, um, well, God ends that, that, uh, that episode in the Temple of Dagon by cutting off Dagon's hands and his head. It's like a, that's, a, that's another trophy of war. When you defeat a foreign king, you would cut his head off and his hands and put him on, put him on the wall of your city. So basically, uh, eventually, that's what Yahweh did to Dagon. Cuts his head off and his hands, puts him on the threshold of his own temple to show his ultimate victory over Dagon. And then the rest of the chapter is followed by this tour of victory as city after city falls in the presence of the ark. Uh, and each city sends it away to the next city, which then falls. And the big idea, I mean, the big overarching picture is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, cannot be tamed. He cannot be taken captive. He cannot be made to be used as a, uh, as a talisman or a rabbit's foot. He cannot be made to serve anyone, not the Israelites, not the Philistines. They cannot add him as an accessory to what they really worship, self-fulfillment, power and war, prosperity and material wealth through fertility, represented by Dagon. I was reading this through this week, and this is what kept coming out at me, and this is what I want to call your attention to, is how God defeats the Philistines. You know, Brian was joking in, his, in the, the sermon about the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie and the Nazis pry the lid off and thund- lightning bolts and whirlwinds and a vortex comes out sucking souls into an alternate dimension. Faces melt. None of that happens. There's no lightning bolts. Uh, there's no vortex. There's no whirlwind. No one's face melts that we know of. The ark just is. 
It's just there. The presence of it. It's very being begins to defeat the Philistines as they begin to decompose in its presence. They begin to fall apart. We don't know what the tumors are. Best guess? Bubonic plague. Uh, this disease that resembles, gives the resemblance of death as a reaction to being in proximity to God's holiness. It's really what the whole book of Leviticus is about. The whole book of Leviticus is about disease and things that resemble death as a physical picture put right next to uh, moral and ethical impurity, which are the things that truly cause destruction and death, cannot be in the presence of God. And we see that in the Philistines. The ark's not doing anything but just being there in power and its very presence is what defeats the Philistines. They cannot hold him. They cannot tame him because they cannot stand in his presence. And so the point I'm trying to make is that God's very being is power. And I think what this has been teaching me this week is that this is why we so often mistake power for weakness and weakness for power. Because to us, for us, in our fallen state, power is almost always some form of pressure or exertion to bend things to our will. That's what we think about as power. Think about it. The fight you have with your spouse, your best friend, uh, things we do to get ahead, even the massive wars that we wage, everything as far as when we think power, we think external coercion to bend the world to how we want it. That could be things of the physical world. That could be to bend, as Adam and Eve did, the moral world to their wills. And as we have fallen suit ever since. And so, and so look, we see, the, we see the ark. We see the, Israel defeated. We see the ark going to the, into the Philistines, and we, into the hands of the Philistines, and we think weakness. We see the cross. We see Jesus die. We see Jesus go into the tomb. We think weakness. Why? Because a co- an external power seemed to have sway over them and take them into captivity through force of will. But God is telling us this. This is what I think God is telling us in this section. That yeah, the, these, these idols... They don't really have power, but God, in contrast, is power. And his power is his holiness, his being, who he is in and of himself, and, 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 and the created order that he has created in, in alignment with himself. The reality of the created order. And then, so what that means is that being aligned with, being in communion with his being being in deep communion and in dependence upon him for us is what power really is, which is contradictory to our view of coercion, external force power. So you know, in the Bible, it's, you know, it talks about you know, the foolishness of man is the wisdom of God, or the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man, that the weakness of God is stronger than man. It's not saying that Christ's death and burial was weakness, 
It's saying it, it looked to us like weakness. What it was, was power. It was power. And so God is telling us that power is not in our innate idolatry, our desire to bend reality to our wills. It can never be. The heart of idolatry is just that, bending reality to our wills to get what we want, what we feel to be good, true, and beautiful in contrast to God's revealed wisdom and will. And power is instead to be found in what we see as weakness and abandoning our individualism, abandoning our self-fulfillment and ideas about it, putting ourselves on the altar, literally, Paul says, as a living sacrifice. Think about that. For God to kill the self and do whatever he wants with us and our job is to be strapped up to the horns of the altar and not cry as God does his work, trusting that what he is doing in us is good and true and beautiful. Allowing him to do what he will and what he will and what he is doing is he is giving us his divine life. He is sharing with us not what we want, but more than anything, what we need. And that's the last point. He is giving us what we need. Now let me, let me reiterate the story that we've read so far about the ark. It starts out, Israel is, is it's in the, the period of the judges, and Israel has fallen into this awful state of lawlessness and sin that is worse than any of the nations that they dispossessed. Uh, even though God has warned them about the consequences of their sin, that it will resu- result in curses and in exile, when Israel does the ultimate offense of taking God and trying to use the ark for their own will and power, instead of the curses coming upon Israel, the ark instead goes into captivity, into exile with the Philistines. The Philistines then take the ark and place it into the temple of the God of the earth, Dagon. But the holiness of God is such that the earth and Dagon cannot hold him. And in this stunning reversal, what seemed to be absolute weakness, the capture and imprisonment and placing him in the tomb of Dagon's temple, if you will, turns out to be this stunning defeat where he emerges from captivity by virtue of the power of his being. It has nothing to do with the morality of the people, but for the power of God who acts on their behalf. And if you keep going with the story, if we were to take the story to the next, uh, the next place where the ark shows up, in 2 Samuel, the ark ends up in, in a city called Kiriath Dream for decades. And then till David, until King David, the messianic king, who is dressed in an ephod of the priest, acting as king and priest, leads the procession of the ark up the holy mountain to Mount Zion, where he's placed in the temple of David. And David makes a single sacrifice. If you read the text in First Chronicles, he makes one sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, and then he places Asaph, the singers, in front of the ark, unveiled for the worship of praise and thanksgiving. The tabernacle, the tent, the animal sacrifice is happening in Gibeon. Zadok the high priest and everybody's still doing that 
off somewhere else, but in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, for the whole reign of King David, there's this picture of New Testament worship, of praise and thank sacrifice in the unveiled presence of God, no animal sacrifice. A picture of Christ's victory over death. And God has done the same for us, and that is our greatest need. Our greatest need is for someone to break the slavery and our, our in slavery to our idolatrous selves, to break the power of it for us, and to win the life for us, and to share with us the divine life that we so desperately need. And so the big lesson here is that God is bringing us into deep communion with himself, which is reality and power. He lets us experiment in his mercy with setting these idols up over and over and over again to show us their weakness so that we would come and realize his power for us on our behalf. That he is destroying the strongholds of our hearts that keep us from what it is we need, his divine life shared with us. And when we get what we need, we ultimately find that it was what we wanted all along. So, concluding, let's remember this. Let's recognize, and let's go deep in understanding what sin is. It is a pre-existing condition our hearts throw up without prompting visions of what self-fulfillment looks like that is contrary to God's will on its own. We don't have to do anything to make it do that. That is our reality. To recognize that and to recognize what it is that that keeps us from, which is offering God the worship that he deserves. Let's recognize and remember that, that weakness and what weakness and power are, that weakness is idolatry, that it's our attempts to bend God and reality to our wills. And what happens when we ultimately do that? The idols fail. It may take a long time, but eventually they fade out and are not God. And finally, let's remember what God has done for us. He is breaking down the weakness in our hearts and replacing it with the power of his Son so that we might rejoice in him and enjoy him forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for telling us the truth about ourselves, Lord. We uh, flatter ourselves in a hundred ways. But as long as we are believing that we can conquer our sin on our own power, the farther away we are from doing so but you tell us the stories over and over again in the gospel. The the whole Bible is this mosaic of individual stories about Jesus that when we step back and look at the whole mosaic, it's a big picture of Jesus to tell us over and over again that your project is to defeat the idols that rule our hearts and free us from that slavery so that we might find the rest and enjoyment that is only in you and that you will do it. That this isn't something that might happen for us, that you are doing it now. 
that by the power of your word, by prayer, by the means of grace, by all the things you give us, you are defeating those strongholds so that we could run to you even in the midst of our sin and seek comfort from you as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones who are being afflicted from sin. And so we praise you, Lord. Help us to run to you. Help us to see our hearts for what they are and help us to hold fast to the promises that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.